So last week, we were having a discussion about unity in the church. And we were talking about essential elements that were required for us to attain that unity, that oneness, the the fullness and maturity that each of us has to have as we are in Christ. And we were talking about these elements of grace and the elements of the gifts of the Spirit. And when we put those elements together, Scripture tells us we will achieve that unity that God wants for us as the church, the body of Christ in motion in the world. Now this morning I want to dig just a little bit deeper in that and look at a necessary step in achieving unity in Christ, that that fullness that we are called to achieve. And interestingly enough, one of the steps necessary for the church to achieve unity is division. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. What kind of crazy talk is that? That we have to use division to achieve unity. Well, let's dig just a little bit deeper. If you have your Bible handy, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning, beginning around verse 49, where Jesus tells us that He is not the cause of unity in the world, but rather the cause of division. Hear what Jesus has to say. He says, I came to bring fire to the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And what stress I am under until that is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now we've heard that passage of Scripture many times. We've even heard it coming from this very pulpit. See, the thing about that passage of Scripture is it doesn't matter how many times you've heard it, every time I read it, I am troubled. Division is uncomfortable. Division, especially in the church, is uncomfortable. But there has to be division in the world for us to understand just exactly what it is to be righteous and how that looks compared to unrighteousness. See, Those that have an impression of Jesus as this meek and mild, humble man from Nazareth, they especially have an issue with this scripture. We forget sometimes that Jesus is God incarnate. We forget sometimes that love sometimes means telling people what they don't want to hear. We want our Jesus to be one of inclusion, never mind principle. We want our Jesus to be one of tolerance, never mind judgment. 
even though it's given to Jesus alone to judge. We don't want to be judged. I'm always reminded of what the great orator and preacher Charles Spurgeon said about this very passage. I, I don't think we can preach this passage in the church anymore without remembering Charles Spurgeon and what he said. He said, Jesus in this passage reveals a great peculiarity of the gospel that causes men to oppose it. He bears witness that the gospel is an ardent, fervent, flaming thing. It's a subject for passion and enthusiasm. It's a theme for intense devotion, and it's something that excites men's souls and stirs them to their lowest depths. And for this reason mainly, it causes hostility. The gospel of Jesus Christ causes division. Jesus says, I've come to start a fire on the earth. Does that sound peaceful? How I wish it were blazing right now, he says. I've come to change everything. For too long, things have been upside down. I've come to turn them right side up. And Jesus says, I want this work to be completed. He reminds us, do you think that I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Is that what we want in our Savior? To go along with evil and unrighteousness just to get along? No, that's not what we want. Jesus says, I've come to disrupt and confront from now on, when you find five in a household, it's going to be three against two and two against three. Even people within your own household may have differing opinions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while we love peace within our household, is it ever worth the peace to go along just to get along? Gospel of Matthew gives an interesting perspective on this words that Jesus spoke. Jesus said in Matthew's account, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. I don't know how many people, and this is a rhetorical question, don't raise your hands. I don't know how many people are living right now in a household where some people are believers in Jesus Christ and some people are not. But believe it or not, it's more common than you would think. Now, Jesus is not trying to disrupt the family. In fact, Jesus wants the family, the cornerstone, the building blocks of God's kingdom to be strong and unified in Christ. And he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves, loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. You see, it is about unity and unity in the family, but it's specific unity in Christ that Jesus is advocating. Unity for unity's sake is nothing. Unity in Christ is the objective. So we have to go back to Spurgeon. He says, if the gospel were a mere propriety of ceremonies, a truth which would slumber in a creed or lie entombed somewhere in the back of our minds, if it were not a spiritual principle that lays hold upon the innermost nature, rule the emotions, fire the affections, if it were not all of this, no one would oppose it. But because it is so living and forcible a principle, the powers of evil are in, up in arms to defeat it. If the gospel of Jesus Christ was of no consequence, if it had no impact on saving the souls of humankind, the devil wouldn't pay any more attention to it. He wouldn't care. Preach your gospel has no impact. Well, that's not the truth. The gospel does has impact. Isn't this the way the devil works? If, if you want to test this hypothesis, all you have to do is go onto any social media platform, a public space, not your own page, because generally our friends are of like mind. There may be some differences, but a public space that has nothing to do with Christianity or the gospel or religion of any type, go onto a public space and post something positive about Jesus, about God, about Christianity, and then just sit back and watch the masses rise up against the very proclamation of the gospel. Why is that? Well, it's because our society, our culture, rejects the gospel message. What is good is called bad. What is bad is called good. What's right is called wrong. What's wrong is called right. These are the signs of the times in which we're living. This cultural shift away from the church, not a new thing, by the way. It's been happening since the 1950s. Shift away from the church, away from righteousness, away from the gospel. Now, if we continue in Luke 12, Jesus rebukes the crowd because they're asking for signs. They're not really interested in anything except for the show and the free lunch. They want signs. They want to see these fantastic things. And when he gives them signs and miracles, they don't pay attention to anything but what might fill their bellies. Signs. Are we heeding the signs of today? Luke talks about the signs of the times. Continuing in chapter 12, verse 54. 
Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, Jesus said. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the signs of the times? Jesus' message is really very simple. That in, in terms that anyone listening in that particular audience, and also this one, should be able to understand when you see clouds coming in from the west you say there's a storm coming and you're right and when the wind comes out of the south you say this is going to be a hot one and you're right and so jesus calls all who can read those signs but for some reason can't read the sign of the times which are just as obvious he calls them frauds hypocrites you know how to tell a change in the weather, so you don't, so don't tell me, Jesus says, that you can't tell that there is a change in the God season that we're in right now. I, I, I think about what I've experienced the past five years, and it's markedly different than the previous five years. There has been a shift in the culture. People demand signs, but do they pay attention when God provides? Matthew chapter 16 the demand for a sign. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Here's your sign. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be a stormy day for the sky is red and threatening. How that saying has been passed down the ages. It's nothing new. Remember the sailors. Red sky in morning. Sailor, take warning. Red sky at night. Sailor's delight. These are truths. Universal truths that have been passed down through the ages. And the truth of the signs of God is just as evident. Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left them and went away. We've heard that term before, haven't we? The sign of Jonah. Where did that come from? Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40. The sign of Jonah. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Always asking for a sign and then never paying attention when he gives it to them. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Jesus might as well have said to them, you folks just don't get it. Why should I continue to show you miracles and signs and wonders Because you're not paying attention anyway. Even so, Jesus still continues in this this goodness. He continues to do miracles throughout his ministry. Why? For, For their further benefit and to show the glory and power of God. And he gives them, he gives us, One sign that's different from all the rest. And that is the resurrection of Christ from the dead by his own power. The sign of the prophet Jonah. It's the greatest proof of Christ being the Messiah. It's the ultimate proof of Jesus Christ being exactly who he said he is. For by this sign he was declared to be the Son of God with power. That's Romans 1.4. Such a sign, it surpassed all of the rest of the signs and miracles. His work completed and his victory and his crowning glory. And he said, if they won't believe The former signs, they're never going to believe this. And if this doesn't convince them, then nothing will. And yet, the unbelief of the Jews found out even a way to get past the resurrection. They, They simply said his disciples came and stole him away. You see, there are none so incurably blind as those who are resolved that they will not see. And it's those who just will not see who are the ones that we are at odds with in this culture. This is the dividing sword of Christ between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the believer and the unbeliever. Some of them who we are divided against might be in our own household. Some of them might have some kind of authority over us, maybe our boss or our employer. Some of them may be someone who's dear to us, a friend or a relative. These are folks who we as the church are trying to minister to. And in some cases, these Folks require love and and prayer beyond the usual. We we call them EGRs. You've heard that before. Extra grace required. We, We may have to love them despite their ways. But the thing that we can't ever do is we can't ever go along to get along. What we must never do is condone their sin. What we must never be is their sin enabler. See, Jesus ate with sinners, but he never participated in their sin. 
And when it comes right down to our very souls, we can never agree to compromise the truth of the gospel for anything, for anyone, for any reason. We have to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many will come against it with their own interpretations of a verse of scripture to fit their lifestyle. Uh, that's not the way the gospel works. You see, we have to experience the division between those who are believers and those who are not. We have to wade through and live among the culture that is self-absorbed and denies Christ so that the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness can be clearly defined. So that the sin can be called sin and the righteousness can be called righteousness. We have to define it so that we, the church, can influence the culture instead of allowing the culture to influence the church. We have to experience the division so we can attain the full measure of maturity, of oneness, of unity in Christ. The biggest thing that causes empty chairs in a sanctuary is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that those that don't know that the gospel is being preached and lived here by the body of Christ think that there's no difference between their culture and this one. And therefore, why should I go? Does that make sense? For too long, the church has allowed the culture to come pouring through the door. And in order to attract the culture, to fill the seats, the church has gone along to get along. And so once culture pours in and sees, I'm not the same in here as it is out there. I think I'll go fishing. I think I'll go to the lake this Sunday morning. Because I don't need anything they have in there. Jesus is telling us we need to be on fire for the gospel and fearless and relentless in spreading it. That's not going along to get along. That's using the sword of truth to make a firm, fast division between sin and righteousness. And so as the Apostle Paul says, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. We need to ignite that fire this morning and every morning. We need to be living for Jesus. We need to be out in our community giving our testimony of what God has done in our lives so that those folks that don't know Jesus will want to know him better. And so I'll close with what Charles Spurgeon said. Oh, lovers of Christ. Come and bow at his feet and ask him to let his love supply you 
with Holy Spirit fire this morning. Come to the pierced one. Gaze upon the thorn crown. Look into the hole which the soldier's spear has made. Gaze into his nail prints and say unto your soul, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now for the love I bear his name. What was my gain I count my loss. My former pride I call my shame. And nail my glory to his cross. Yes, and I must and will esteem all things but loss for Jesus' sake. Oh, may my soul be found in him and of his righteousness partake. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne. But faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.